Hi, it's Patrick here, and today on the pod, one of my favorite things, U.S. versus Britain. Expression, lack of expression, denying yourself expression, the stiff upper lip. And, and here's the thing. We all know that the U.S. and Britain, they're two nations separated by a common language, blah, blah, blah. But it's not just the words that we use or the words that we pronounce that mark us out as different from one another. What we say and what we're not saying, that's wildly different sometimes too. And while Americans have, well, they have something of a reputation for saying whatever's on their mind. Brits, they have a reputation for not saying whatever's on their mind, thinking something else. They, they have that Downton Abbey thing that gets sold to America. Keep calm and carry on. Grin and bear it. The stiff upper lip. Well, what is the stiff upper lip and, and where did it come from and how does it affect how British people express themselves? Here's a story that I did for The Big Show. A funny thing happened at Wimbledon this year. Andy Murray cried. Right, I'm going to try this and it's not going to be easy. Murray was a moderately popular tennis player, but Britons hadn't really embraced him. Not until he lost the final and spoke on court afterwards. The people watching, they make it so much easier to play. The support has been, been incredible, so thank you. From that moment on, the British public no longer merely admired Murray, they loved him. Now, if he'd burst into tears in an earlier era, he might have been mocked and shunned. Well, actually, it depends how far back you go in British history. There was a time, long before those stern Victorians, when Britain was a nation that wept, and wept a lot. People are complaining that the British are just sitting around crying all the time and thoroughly wet. This is journalist Ian Hislop, who's been researching British emotional life. The evidence for this heart-on-the-sleeve behaviour comes from notes and diaries of Italians, Dutchmen and other Europeans who visited Britain in the 17th and 18th centuries. A proper man and a refined woman would display their emotions openly. They would cry and you weren't a civilised person if you didn't. It was ingrained in the culture, books were written about it, codes of behaviour taught. So what changed, what transformed the British character into the more familiar one of restraint and unflappability? I think it was the French Revolution. 1789, right across the English Channel. The British watched, essentially, some foreigners getting very, very excitable, out of control, passions unleashed, and look what happened. What happened was the rise of Napoleon and decades of war. The British reacted against Napoleon, a man who wore perfume and looked at art, with their own military hero. They came up with the Duke of Wellington, a man of discipline who spurned creature comforts. Wellington then vanquished Napoleon. The British Empire thrived, and self-restraint became its emotional expression. It served the empire well. The British came to see their rule abroad not as repressive, but as a mission, a civilizing mission. Charles Darwin, better known for other observations, declared that Englishmen rarely cry, implying that everyone else did a little too much. Thomas Dixon, director of the Centre for the History of Emotions at the University of London, says many British men at the time put themselves through feats of endurance. Exploration, swimming the channel, climbing mountains, trying to find the source of the Nile and so on. They were an extreme version of the stiff upper lip, proving that the Anglo-Saxon male could achieve anything, could suffer anything, uh, and come out the other end robust and manly. As for women, they were praised for putting up with so much 
in silence. That's what all the, the literature about women in this period says. Uh, this is a very backhanded compliment, of course, to say to women, you're so great at suffering and having no power, please carry on doing it. But that didn't last forever. Women demanded the vote and got it. And after World War I, when so many men died because they followed the orders of incompetent officers, grinning and bearing it seemed to have lost its appeal. But after a few years of social rebellion and lots of partying, along came a second Napoleon, Hitler. Never in history has an entire people borne so frightful an ordeal so bravely. Yes, England can take it. The propaganda machine was all about the stiff upper lip. This is Joanna Bork, a historian at the University of London. There's a wonderful film called Fires Were Started, where this woman, she's on the telephone, and all of a sudden a bomb drops just behind her, and she dives under the table. Then just a second later, you see her crawling out, and she carries on doing her business. Oh, yes, I'm sorry for the interruption. We have another message for you. This version of the stiff upper lip was admired around the world, especially in the U.S. It survives today, at least in how the world views Britons, people who just get on with life, who kept calm and carried on through the bombings of the IRA in the 1970s and the London terrorist attacks in 2005. The British who don't grumble, even while not grumbling, make a point of saying mustn't grumble. Still, modern life has dealt blow after blow to the stiff upper lip. Things like TV, therapy, and America. Before their influence, the lip has drooped, says Thomas Dixon of the Centre for the History of the Emotions. I think the most powerful arguments against the stiff upper lip were really medical ones. It was bad for you, both physically and mentally. Having a stiff upper lip, being repressed, was bad for you. Brits were learning to let it all hang out, a little later than in the U.S., says journalist Ian Hislop, and with the help of one key figure. It hit its high point with Diana, which everyone said, well, that's it. We, we let it hang out publicly. Goodbye, Rose. May you ever grow in our hearts. You are the grace that placed yourselves. It's well documented that when Diana, Princess of Wales, died, millions of Britons cast aside what was often described as their natural reserve and wept openly. They wept for someone who seemed to personify the new Britain, open, emotional, confessional. She seemed at war with the old order, stuffy, formal, cold. It was enough to make many Britons wonder just exactly what the national character was. That questioning continues to this day, with episodes like Andy Murray's Wimbledon Tears. But Ian Hislop says, don't be fooled. The stiff upper lip is part of the British character, in a good way, even if its beginnings in the 19th century were less benign. The flaws with the stiff upper lip do include it being used as a, as a method of social control. Don't complain, carry on. The empire swagger of the 19th century never returned. The Second World War, it's not the same. It's the stiff upper lip with a smile. It's the cheeky chappy who carries on. Now it's evolved into the stiff upper lip with a tear, just once in every while. Hislop is convinced that it'll keep evolving. I'm sure we will adapt it. There won't be deference included but I think there could still be an ability to survive, which in serious times requires a certain amount of keeping it together. Hislop says that if he's wrong, if the stiff upper lip is already consigned to history, that's fine. No point in making a fuss about it. Just deal with it and get on with life. For The World, I'm Patrick Cox. Stiff upper lip, stout fella, carry on old bean, chin up. 
keep muddling through. Stiff upper lip, stout fella, dash it all I mean. Pip, pip, do old man trouble and a toodaloo doo. Carry on through thick and thin. If you feel you're in the right, does the fighting spirit win? Oh, quite, 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 quite. Stiff upper lip, stout fella, when you're in a stew. Sober a plato, this is the motto. Keep modeling through. Okay, back to one of the things that came up in that story. Keep calm and carry on. A really insanely popular phrase these days. Popular in the UK mainly, but also in other places. You really can't escape it. And you can't escape the many variations of it, like keep calm and blog on, or keep calm and game on, keep calm and put the kettle on, keep calm and call Batman. You get the idea. In a bit, a variation of that phrase from Belgium, of all places. But first, back to World War II, or just before it, when the phrase came into being. A guy called Nigel Rees has written a book about catchphrases from the war. Here he is speaking with the BBC's Evan Davis. Actually, before that, I should just say something about Dad's Army, because this gets a mention in the interview. Dad's Army was a comedy show set during World War II that ran on the BBC mainly in the 1970s. And Dad's Army, what that means is men who were too old to serve in the British Army. So they formed themselves into little platoons of what was called the Home Guard to defend Britain should the Germans invade. Okay, here is Nigel Rees. There were three big slogans devised before the outbreak of war in 1939. One was, freedom is in peril, defend it with all your might. Uh, George Orwell soon dismissed this as absolutely futile. (laughs) The second one was, your courage, your cheerfulness, your resolution will bring us victory. And the Times said at the time this was insipid and patronising. But those were both used in the early years of the war. Keep calm and carry on, which was devised (laughs) before the outbreak of war, uh, solely to be used in the event of a German invasion. Uh, That was never used because there was never a German invasion. And it was only about six or seven years ago that a bookseller up north Uh, found copies of this poster and now of course it's almost impossible to go into a home and not find it on a tea towel or... Interestingly it's actually the design, almost the the graphic design It is a brilliant poster, the white lettering on, with the the crown on a red background it's it's a stunning poster. Now when I saw that you were coming in to talk about a book on wartime phrases, I thought how do you make a whole book out of sort of keep calm carry on type things, but actually there are an awful lot of them in here, of course things that one wouldn't have known, TTFN, to for now, I didn't know that was a wartime. Well, Itmar, which is, is in itself a sort of catchphrase, it's that man again, originally referred to Hitler in, in the 1930s, was what newspapers would say, oh, it's that man again. And then it was taken up by Tommy Handley uh, as the title of a very popular wartime radio show, which pulled the, the nation together and was really just made up of endless catchphrases, one after the other. So was war particularly... It was, it was at a richer time, then, for phrases to, to emerge? I think it's, it, it's inevitable. The words and phrases just sort of have to be minted to take care of the situation. And the title of the book, Don't You Know There's a War On? I mean, it's a catchphrase which arose because people were complaining about shortages and their inability to do the things that they used to do. And people would say, well, don't you know there's a war on? I thought that was the warden in Dad's army. I thought, I thought that they had invented the phrase. No, no, no. They obviously picked up a lot of phrases... 
interesting thing about Dad's Army is that uh, that was the the nickname they said was given to the local defence volunteers who became the Home Guard. I found no evidence that they were ever <laughs> called Dad's Army, but anyway, it's a good phrase. Yeah, I mean, of course, things like keep calm and carry on. All some of them. There's something vaguely un-British, isn't there, about having putting up posters, imploring yes. the population to have some mood or other. It just seems yeah, not, I, I not, not up. I don't think people responded at all, and I, I don't think that you could use them nowadays. I, what would you put on a poster <laughs> now? Cheer up. The worst is yet to come. Don't You Know There's a War On by Nigel Rees. And that's the BBC's Evan Davis. OK, now a Belgian take on Keep Calm and Carry On. And this comes from one of those moments when a politician says something off the cuff that gets taken up in a huge way along the lines of Mitt Romney's binders full of women. The big show's Clark Boyd is the pod's go-to guy for all things Belgian. He's just back from Belgium. He spent two years there. So, Clark, fill us in. All right, some background. Belgium is a complicated place, linguistically and politically. The northern part of the country, called Flanders, is where most of the Dutch speakers live. The southern part, Wallonia, is home to mostly French speakers. And the two regions, well, they don't always see eye to eye when it comes to politics. In recent years, Flemish nationalist parties have polled well. And the most well-known Flemish nationalist politician is Bart de Weaver. Recently, de Weaver ran for mayor of the Flemish city of Antwerp, and he won, handily. But as he tried to give his victory speech at campaign headquarters, the DJ wouldn't shut the music off and let him talk. That's De Weaver, in exasperation, saying in Antwerp dialect, Zet die plat off, literally, take the plate off. Plat, in this case, being the old school word for record, you know, vinyl. De Weaver went on, repeatedly asking for the plot to be taken off. He also got a bit sweary and even called the person running the music an idiot. De Weaver then gave a rousing victory speech in perfect Dutch, but for that one moment, he seemed real, using his local Antwerp dialect and fully embracing his popular background, as a Belgian buddy of mine said. And so Belgians from north and south zeroed in on Zet de Platov, and an internet meme was born, starting with a remix based on the track that De Weaver was trying to quiet. Other DJs have picked up on it as well. It's also gotten remixed into that famous British slogan. Yep, today I saw Keep Calm and Zet the Plot Off. Sound advice. For the world, this is Clark Boyd. Okay, well, I've got to be setting the Plot Off right about now. If you like this podcast, please tell your friends, blog about it, share about it, tweet it, link to the pod site, which is theworld.org slash language. You can also like the Facebook page called, predictably, I'm afraid, The World in Words. I post updates there. I tweet them as well. And I tweet a whole bunch more language stories. I'm on Twitter as Patrick Ox, P-A-T-R-I-C-O-X. See you next time.